Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, episode 39, the mostly butts, little bit of wang edition. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of the Dissolve. Our latest canon list on the most daring roles for women since Ellen Ripley in Alien was published this morning. On today's show, we wanted to dig into this list a little bit and talk about how it came together and why we made the choices we did. Then we'll share the uncomfortable viewing experiences we've had and include some really great stories from you, the podcast listener. The game this week is Golden Trivia Answer Retriever, in which I quiz the group on their dog movie knowledge. And we wrap it up, as always, with our quickfire recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned, Dissolvers. Today we published our latest canon list, The 50 Most Daring Roles for Women Since Ripley. And as usual, the list is definitive and beyond dispute. Entries include obvious choices like Marge Gunderson in Fargo and Tracy Flick in Election, to more eclectic selections like Zoe Lund's Mute Avenger in Miss 45 and the soccer-loving ensemble in Jafar Panahi's Offside. But coming up with the list involved a different process than usual, because the list of choices was so vast and our definition of the word daring was a little murky. Joining me to talk about our rationale for the list and some of our favorite choices are Tasha Robinson and Keith Phipps. Hello. Hello. Tasha Robinson, this was your, this was your idea. This is your brainchild. So let's, let's go and start with you. What was your motivation for proposing the list? I think what it came down to was, I mean, we read a lot about gender here at The Dissolve. And often that that take is a little dismissive. Like, I think we get, like everybody on the internet and possibly everybody in the world, especially people who are writers, we tend to get most exercised when we're angry about something. So we write a lot more about, uh, you know, I saw this film and the, the primary women character was a dish rag or a shrew or boring or not a character. Uh, a friend of mine refers to certain kinds of female characters as animal companions um, because when you have somebody with no agency whose only job is to follow the male lead around it's kind of like the animals in Beastmaster you know <laughs> if there's no difference between the female lead of the movie I haven't seen Jurassic World but I keep coming back to this idea if there's no difference between the female lead in the movie and like the ferret that you keep in your uh, you know medieval fanny pack then then that's a problem but calling calling out things that we have problems with is no good if we don't also like look for a model like a positive model and the idea behind this originally I don't remember if it originally came out of talking about Ripley's role in Alien like in the month uh, before we actually published all of the Aliens content for movie of the week or if there was something else either roles that we didn't like or roles that we did like that we were talking about at the time this piece has been in planning for a while but the overall motive was just like let's provide sort of positive examples as opposed to ragging on negative examples. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should, we should talk a little bit about using Ripley as a starting point. I mean, what, what qualities does that character have uh, that, that makes her special? Well, she's, I mean, she's such a, uh, like a water, a high watermark um, for action heroines of the time. I mean, I, I mentioned in my Aliens keynote that she's widely considered the first female action heroine. And I, I've used those words very specifically because all of the research that I did for that piece, people kept calling her the first action movie heroine. And I mean, that's not true because, you know, decade of, of black exploitation and you know, Pam Greer comes to mind. Sure. Um, and, you know, you get a little murky when you start looking at uh, stuff like just like the history of femme fatales. I, I think that we could actually possibly make a really interesting list of pre-Ripley 
uh, female action heroines and that that would be a lot of fun to do. But it's it came up over and over and over, like she's been canonized in that role um, by so many critics and writers. So for me, I just... A lot of the characters on this list that I suggested that I immediately went to were characters like Ripley, where when I first thought it, saw it, I thought, that's what I've been missing. That's what I, I, I didn't know that you could do that with a female character. I'm so glad to see you can. More of that, please. Which is kind of, uh, we chewed over what adjective to use and we landed on daring. We kept coming back to daring because, not because we love the word necessarily, because but because it's sort of the cleanest way of distilling what we were going for. Because there's lots of, you know, many, we didn't want to do best because there are many, many great roles for women that kind of don't break through traditional boundaries. We were kind of going for something that was doing something, bringing something new to the table or something we hadn't, you know, when these, when these films appeared, we hadn't seen before. And that was sort of the, what united everything we went for on the list. And there's a lot of like historical value to some of these entries. Like some of them still stand out in our minds. I think Margie and Fargo, we still haven't really seen a, a, like another pregnant middle-aged lady gumshoe <laughs> with uh, like, like brilliant deductive abilities and a happy home life. That's just such a distinctive character. Um, but some of the other things on this list, they were extremely daring in their time. And if they've become less daring in retrospect, because we've seen more of that, I mean, that's great. I don't have any problem with the fact that, well, okay, now every other uh, action movie might have a heroine who looks something like Ripley because she was so inspirational and she was so well emulated. That doesn't make her in her historical period any less daring. Well, I think there's two. The if you're going to talk about um, Ripley and someone like Marge Gunderson, is this idea of of completeness of of multifaceted mm. characters, not not just somebody. You know, I, I don't think Ripley is somebody we appreciate simply because she can she kicks ass. Uh, it's because she's got she's gotten particularly as the series goes on a, a lot of her facets to her character as well, and certainly Marge Gunderson absolutely does. Uh, uh, and uh, and I think when you look look through the list, I think you you just get that. You you can't you have a lot of characters that you can't really pin down to just the one just one thing or one kind of role in the, in in moving the narrative forward they've got a lot of different aspects of characters a lot of you know strengths and also vulnerabilities and and uh you know things that they're doing out in the world things that they're doing domestically um it's just it, there's there's a, a there's genuine depth there i think one of the things that makes ripley so interesting today is because like when I saw Aliens, I don't think I appreciated anything about her nuance. I was just excited to see a, a lady kicking ass uh, to the degree and in the way that she does. She is so unapologetic about shouting down the shouting down the men, shouting down the committee at the beginning that doesn't believe her, shouting down Burke when he wants to like go on this quest, shouting down uh, Gorman in like every aspect of his plotting, and just like more and more throughout the film. She she brooks no objections from people, and she's pretty much always right. But then she's not afraid to get in there physically. But seeing her today, rewatching that film, one of the things that struck me is, as you say, her maternal side is there. It doesn't soften her. She's yeah. not at all soft. But she is still compassionate. She's still empathetic. She's smart. Like there are all of these other aspects to her that make her more than you know your standard Jason Statham pre-spy tough guy who has no feelings like she's she's just there's, there's so many different aspects to her yeah. and i didn't appreciate that at the time i do now 
And she's terrified too. That's part of what makes mm-hmm. the. I mean, she she's vulnerable in really interesting ways too. So and we could just talk about Ripley the whole time. But, <laughs> That's but true. What, what what were you most excited to see on on? I mean, it was, it was a fun list to put together, and, and I, I was just kind of as the selections rolled in, I was like, oh yeah, that's that's great. You know, can, do we stop at fifty? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some of the stuff that I was most excited to see was things that I hadn't thought of, especially from other cultures. I mean, when uh, Scott first brought up the fact that we didn't have a Jafar Pani movie on the list, we had to kind of break down the characters in Offside because it's like, is there one of them in particular that we should hold out? Uh, Like looking at stuff like that, Wajda didn't make the list, but was kind of a standout for me in terms of these are characters that are like breaking stride from like a long traditional culture and like we're we're seeing sort of the future of what life might look like for women in the arts in other countries with some of these films. So those are the ones that excited me most. And Panahi, we could have gone, we could have done the same thing with the circle that we did for Offside in terms of, you know, because the circle is about, you know, the different, uh, different stories involving I- Iranian women under siege. Um, it's just, there's just, you know, and I think it does kind of, in both films, kind of function um, as, uh, you know, a standard, I guess, for, for womankind, uh, his, his work. But it's a remarkable, too, too, the degree to which, uh, you know, Iran is really pretty progressive as far as that is concerned. I mean, well, it, the films we get. The films know. we get, right. The films like Layla is another one that comes to mind. But, um, but uh, I guess yeah, I don't know how progressive you can call it. Well, Bahani is, you know, locked up for him making the films. That oh, that's makes. true. No, I'm, I guess I'm talking about talking about uh, uh, the actual art. But um, but it was nice to see. I mean, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit, too, about the process of putting this together, because it wasn't, uh, you know, it can be a little bit dull to go uh, behind that particular curtain. But this is a little bit unusual for us because the, well, the way we normally do this, do these lists is we have an idea for it. We cast out. Um, to to our various uh, cult, uh, you know contributors, and uh, they submit lists. We do we do some tabulation, and that's how it comes together. But in this case, we solicited p- potential en- entries, and then we actually sat down in a room and kind of mapped it out and really kind of kind of constructed the list and said what needs to be on here. Uh, y- yes, no, maybe, and we found, kind of found a list that way. I guess I'll ask this question to you. I mean, what what did the, what was the compl- complexion of the list? What, what did we want the list to look like? Well, we wanted it to to have both historical value and like current relevance. We wanted it to not just be sort of a list of milestones. You know, first female character to, to do this, first female character to do that. We wanted at least some of that in there, but we also just wanted like again characters that we want uh, want to see more of, characters that we want emulation. We wanted characters that surprised us uh, when we first saw the film. We wanted like a, a variety. We, we definitely wanted it to not all be uh, white women from American mainstream big budget movies, mm-hmm. which I think the very first iteration of the list as lists so often do, tended that way a little. And we kind of went back to people and said, you know, dig a little deeper. Think about think about indie movies. Think about international movies. Think about, like, other things that you've seen that fall outside that first knee-jerk reaction. But, I mean, a lot, of, a lot more curation went into this than usual. 
in that we for instance we decided not to include animated movies Mm -hmm. we decided we were going to push really hard to not have multiple roles by the same actor or multiple films by the same director and that like i think if we had done just a straight like numerical tabulation thing um we would have ended up with a slightly different list In, in this case i mean it it sounds funny telling you this since you were there. I feel like somebody giving movie exposition. As you as you both know, we sat down in a in a room together. It was kind of like I felt like it was we were kind of doing Tinder with uh, with the different roles, like swipe left, swipe right. Anyway, uh, <laughs> somebody spent a lot more time on Tinder than I have. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> There was a little of that. What we did with this list that we've never done before was when we asked people for solicitations, we asked them to justify them. And because normally it's like with a with a best of the year, the top 10 list or whatever, everybody will submit their 10 ranked items. And you don't have to say, you know, these are your subjective 10 ranked items. You don't have to say, this is why this is number one. In this in this case, we wanted to get a sense of what people were saying was daring about the role. So, you know, we said, submit this list, but in each case, tell us what the argument's gonna be. And we looked a lot more at the argument, I think, than, than the title and our feelings about the title. Definitely. Um, I actually wanted to, because we're getting a little long, I wanted to, to go around the room here and look at the list itself. Pick one role. What's, 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 a, what's a movie or uh, what's, a, what's a role that you would want people to, to, to seek out on this list? Something you're particularly excited made, made the list. I'll start <laughs> since, since, since I seem to have caught you both off guard. Um, uh, the one that excites me the most is, is uh, Tilda Swinton and Julia. Uh, the, which is uh, Eric Zonka's kind of uh, John Cassavetes homage uh, star. Uh, and Swinton is somebody that who, who I think everyone loves and uh, who's a very interesting, eclectic a- actress who's, who's appeared in all sorts of different films uh, domestically and internationally. But I think Julia is, you know, it's her Jenna Rollins tribute. It's a huge, huge role in which she plays uh, a, 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 an alcoholic, uh, you know, a, a not very good person, a very uh, um, self-involved person who agrees to the scheme to kidnap this, this, this woman's child and then hold him for ransom from her ex and, uh, and try to collect money that way. And it's a terrible, terrible, terrible idea that she's desperate enough to take up. And, uh, and the movie kind of sends you on this incredible adventure um, where this character, I think, just keeps showing you more and more layers uh and uh she's just really just funny and kind of nasty but she's big-hearted i just think it's a huge huge role for i think for one of the best actresses out there and i don't think nearly enough people have seen it so julia would be my pick on this list for me it would probably be mavis and young adult that was a film that when i first saw it i found it very off-putting uh it's jason reitman's sort of weird love letter to arrested development and I went through the whole film expecting it to go somewhere different than it did. And and my first viewing of it was just kind of, I'm not really sure what I just saw. The fact that I'm not sure what I just saw makes me want to go back and watch it again. And the second time through, I realized it's a really funny, bleak comedy. And that that character is just so outlandish and, and unusual and daring. 
in the degree to which there is not really a lot going on there. Like she is not in any way a traditional villain, but there's not a lot there to justify her behavior. There's not a lot there excusing her or making her sympathetic. And I think there's a tendency to like, you know, Disney does female villains and has forever. And that's always sort of been the model is this kind of, if you have a female villain, it's this big cackling larger than life, you know, hand rubbing thing, or, you know, the housekeeper lurking in the background uh, you know, cackling and scheming and eventually dying. Here we have a villain who initially doesn't present as a villain and who is completely caught up in her own selfishness, but in a way that actually s- sort of resembles real life. Mm-hmm. Like it's exaggerated, but this is a person that we possibly have all known in our lives. And I just, I think it's so exceptional and daring that he made a film about that character and that he he did it in such an unrelieved and uncompromising and ultimately hilarious way yeah, and she learns nothing and she's redeemed in no way whatsoever these aren't all like role models we're talking oh, about no, not at all uh, although the one i pick i'm going to steal one of Knowles uh, actually kind of, kind of is which is uh jane craig from broadcast news is played by holly hunter and, and as as he lays out in his entry it was it was the 80s were a time of uh, sort of emergence of, of uh you know female executive both as as you know a per- someone in the real world and also as as someone he saw in films and usually as sort of one note and stereotyped and, and often quite villainous and here was a, a three-dimensional very vulnerable smart uh, interesting woman uh who was none of those things none of those stereotypes and and i think i think to a lesser degree but and maybe in a less noticeable degree but but uh you know kind of ripley like that character kind of set a standard that other you know uh women you know other other roles after that of women playing people who were successful in business or 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 uh independent women in some way were follow so i think that that's a that's a good one and i I think it's probably not the most obscure title we have on here but it's definitely a good one seeking out if you haven't seen it yeah it's on it's on criterion which is which is just uh so uh, all right well tasha keith uh thank you very much Mm -hmm. thank you okay let me set the scene for you it's christmas morning 1994 toledo ohio the tobias family has already opened presents and gotten sick of each other so it was time to pack ourselves into two cars and drive out to the nearest multiplex for the first matinee there was a new movie with an incredible cast, including Julia Roberts, Tim Robbins, Kim Basinger, Lauren Bacall, Forrest Whitaker, and over a dozen other big names. The movie, Pret-a-Porter, a.k.a. Ready to Wear, a Robert Altman film that alienated even Robert Altman fans. Uh, needless to say, the exploits of fashionistas in Paris were of limited interest to a lumpen Midwestern family like ours, and it would be a while until I could be trusted to pick a movie for us again. Uh, everyone has had uncomfortable viewing experiences, and so I've asked the Dissolve staff and listeners to share some of them with me. Joining me are... Tasha Robinson. Keith Phipps. Rachel Handler. Okay, so guys, let's start with... We got a, a bunch of voicemails and messages from listeners sharing their own experiences, so I wanted to sprinkle some of those into this segment. Let's start with this one from Patrick in West Virginia, who has a checkered history of seeing movies with his mom. Dissolve, this is Patrick in St. Albans, West Virginia, with an uncomfortable screening experience with my uh, mother. So I remember being 15 and my mother and I going to see The General's Daughter, which is the classic uh, John Travolta rape in the military movie. So, um, yeah, there was that one. And then we didn't go to another movie for a long period of time until I convinced her to go see Frida with me, the Frida Kahlo movie, in which there's randomly a giant lesbian sex scene. 
And then I don't know how I convinced her to go see another movie with me. Uh, it was the, the Guy Madden movie, The Saddest Music in the World, which she still hasn't forgiven me for. And then we didn't go to another movie again until I somehow convinced her to go see The Woodsman, which, of course, is the Kevin Bacon um, pedophile movie. Um, <laughs> for whatever reason, she loved The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, though, so figure that one out. Yeah, so that, that went out on us a little bit. The Woodsman was the name of the Kevin Bacon film. Uh, that is a pretty bad record of seeing movies with your mom, i got to say. <laughs> got to research these things, people. Uh, um, but I want to go around the room and see what, uh, what, what people have uh, as far as uncomfortable viewing experiences. Rachel, let's start with you. Yeah, so the first one that came to mind for me, my dad and I watched a lot of horror movies together growing up. And, um, you know, he showed me The Shining when I was really young. And, like, that was, like, a little bit uncomfortable. Um at certain times but mostly it was it was fine but recently you know we, we haven't done it as much recently so I was like oh dad you know let's get together watch a horror movie like the old times you know <laughs> so I didn't look into this movie at all but I just really like Elizabeth Olsen and I know she was in that movie Silent House <laughs> and it was I didn't read any reviews or anything I was just like oh I really like her this looks like a good horror movie so we start watching it it's like you know the, I'm gonna give away what happens because it's like a terrible movie and no one should see it um, and I, I have your back on this right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and the whole movie, you know, she has this like great relationship with her dad. And I'm like, wow, I picked such a good movie. It's about like a father daughter relationship. Um, and then at the end, it turns out, you know, she's it's really hard to explain. and It's really confusing. But basically, it, the ending is like reveals that her dad has been like this child pornographer slash like pedophile her whole life. And, you know, like it reveals all these childhood scenes where he was you know taking weird pictures of her and her friends and she like murders him. And my dad was looks at me and he was like, what the hell is this movie? <laughs> like it was, and I was so, unco- I was like, dad, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I felt so bad. It was just the most uncomfortable you could ever watch with your father. Cause I was like, Oh, like what a great father daughter film. It was like Hamlet is what yeah. it was. It was like just showing them. <laughs> it was horrible. So that was really uncomfortable. And I also felt bad for forcing us both to watch such a horrible movie. <laughs> what about you, Keith? I don't have a lot because I learned at an early age, my parents were easily offended and everything I wanted to uh, watch was not going to meet their approval. Pretty much from the time I was told, you know, you're not allowed to watch Therese Company anymore, even though I had no idea what was going on in that show. Uh, But I did, I did uh, take my very gentle father to uh, our R-rated film thinking it was was only violence and it mostly was violence called Unforgiven, which opens with a horrific sort of assignation with prostitute turned violent uh, scene uh, and then you know it kind of went from there and that was that was a fairly uncomfortable uh, viewing experience but but I, I really I just kind of guarded my viewing from a very early age so I don't have a whole lot <laughs> um, well I, I have some uh, when I kind of put put up on Twitter that we are doing this segment and ask for people to reply some of them just replied directly to me so I wanted to share a few of those now uh, Walter Chaw the film critic said he took his homecoming date to Dead Ringers at age 16, (laughs) uh, which I I would say Dead Ringers have to be top five worst date movies ever, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, What are these? Oh, they're uh, gynecological instruments from operating on mutant women, I believe, is uh, one (laughs) uh, (laughs) exchange from that. (laughs) Great. Uh, um, uh, Steve Carlson said that at a screening of Killer Joe, a guy freaked out at the climax and started screaming at the audience that they were all terrible people. (laughs) Uh, uh, Steve also admits to watching Caligula with his mom, so I think that's pretty. Uh, and then, and then this is this is one. Of, this is a favorite. Uh, uh, John John Lickman was at the premiere of the Human Centipede with the middle girl's entire family behind him, no. excited to see her big screen debut. That is 
kind of amazing. And then, and then, and then lastly, uh, another guy had a friend who watched the sea inside with a buddy whose mom had been recently paralyzed. So mm. that, that screening did not go mm. particularly well. Uh, Tasha? Well, segue into you. I, I can't match Caligula, Caligula with mom, although I did, like, I was relatively young when uh, we had a big family outing to see Best Little Whorehouse in Texas in the theater, which, you know, I don't, I don't think I was actually sitting next to my mother. I am positive that they took us to that film because, I mean, yeah, it's R-rated, but it's, it's a Dolly Parton musical. How dirty could it be? And then, you know, just a parade of, of bare asses and penises and breasts and... Really? Penises? Yes. I've never seen Vessel. Maybe I need to see Vessel. <laughs> Maybe you do. There's there's not a lot of them, but uh, I go to I used to go to sidetrack show tunes uh, here in Chicago, where they would play on uh, like a do- dozens of video monitors, um, the one song and dance sequence where the uh, men are singing and dancing in the shower, uh, in the locker room after the big football game, and uh, there's definitely some wang there, mostly butts, but a little bit of wang. Anyway, uh, there was that. There was uh, the '80s when everything that had come out in the '80s was suddenly on VHS and home viewing was invented and we would just go to the video store and innocently grab anything that looked colorful or fantasy oriented which is how I got to see a little film called The Perils of Gwendolyn in the Land of the Yik Yak with my father (laughs) which is another basically just parade of, of boobs and sexual situations including a lengthy climax involving a woman's lengthy climax. Is that a Sybil Danning film, Tasha? Is it a what now? Sybil Danning film? Is it a Sybil Danning film? Uh, No, it's Tawny Katane. Oh, Um, yeah. So there you go. But really for me, what it all comes down to is the the back-to-back two years in a row. There was a year I came home from college super excited because I just learned about Studio Ghibli. And I was like, "There's, there's this really critically lauded, fantastic animated film about little children that we have to all sit down and watch together as a family, <laughs> which is how I subjected my, my family to Grave of the Fireflies at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> the following year, I came back from college and said, there's this critically lauded film that I'm really excited about that we all have to go see in the theater. It's called The Piano. <laughs> <laughs> that was the year that mom said, Tasha's never picking the Christmas movies again. Yeah, no, that... <laughs> That sounds uncomfortable. Uh, you know, one, one of my one of my uh, one of my uncomfortable experiences actually figures in to this to this uh, to someone who wrote in. I, I saw I, I lived in a we, we never cursed in our house. I curse like a you know I curse quite a bit now, but uh, but you know unless my dad you know banged his thumb with a hammer, which he did pretty frequently. There's not a lot of <laughs> there's not a lot of cursing in the house, and I can actually recall when I you know one moment in my life when I did it when I got like an acceptance letter from my, my first college acceptance letter i said holy shit i got into this and my and uh and, and my mom said what did you say so this is what my family is all about uh, uh and so and so watching the big lebowski with them as an adult was uh really not good it was a little little more little more f-bombs than i had uh, recalled in that one but uh this is a story from this is another big lebowski story uh that's great from john um uh, i was all of 11 but my dad frequently took me and my friends to R-rated movies, so this wasn't uh, much different in that regard. Then the movie actually began. I had no idea what was happening at any point, essentially. One of the few things I remember distinctly from the experience was the scene where the dude does the pencil trace thing on the notepad to see what had been written on it. My dad guffawed, but I was confused and asked what the drawing was, to which he said in one of those overly loud whispers, It's a penis. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> thanks, John, for that. Um, and uh, I've got I've got a couple couple more good uh, 
user ones. This is from Ian Buckwalter, who is an, another critic and, and uh, f- a friend of mine who did some writing at NPR when I was uh, doing writing for NPR. Uh, he talked about watching Blue Velvet, you know, just having a Blue Velvet sitting around on videotape. His mom threw it in there and they sat down <laughs> to watch it, spent the next two hours in tense, uncomfortable silence. Uh, <laughs> you, you think Jeffrey Beaumont was uncomfortable hiding in that closet watching Frank <laughs> Booth call, call Dorothy mommy and telling her that baby wants to fuck? My stepmom and I were basically stuck together in that closet it for two hours uh, both of us probably wanted to leave but there was no getting out or turning back because then we'd have actually had to acknowledge our extreme discomfort after that eternity of awkwardness ended the credits rolled and there was silence broken <laughs> broken by her saying well that was interesting and we never spoke a word of it to one another ever again uh, so there's that and then there we have another one from andy uh, by far the most uncomfortable viewing experience I ever had was seeing Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me at a theater with my mom when I was 15. <laughs> as soon as Austin drank fat bastard shit, my, my mom literally stood up in the theater and, <laughs> and yelled, Andy, we are leaving now. <laughs> I, I somehow calmed her down and got her to sit back in her chair. And we finished the rest of the movie, uh, but she was pissed. She still gets miffed whenever I bring it up. Uh, 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 so yeah, that sounds horrible when your mom creates an, uh, a scene in, inside the theater. I just uh, I want to go back to that was interesting. Is there any more withering statement a family <laughs> member can make after a, an uncomfortable viewing experience than that was interesting? <laughs> that was interesting. Let us never speak of it again. <laughs> and uh, this this last one is about uh, this this last one from a reader is about old people cursing, which is always fun. Uh, this is from John. Uh, I was at the New Beverly Cinema in Los Angeles for a screening of the original Cape Fear. Uh, um, there, were, there weren't many people there and a couple of rows ahead of me were a sweet looking elderly couple they talked to each other throughout the trailers and they continued to chat once the movie started so a man in front of them turned around and said excuse me but could you please stop talking why don't you shut your fucking mouth the old woman replied <laughs> excuse me the man responded how about I take my cane and breaking over <laughs> over your fucking head, huh? The old man said. Uh, well, wisely, the man didn't have a reply, and no one near the couple said anything out of fear of being assaulted by two senior <laughs> citizens. Eventually, the man got up to complain to the manager, who then gave the couple a serious warning. So, don't tell the elderly to uh, pipe it down because uh, they, they can get pretty belligerent. Uh, Especially not the ones that come armed. <laughs> no, right. Um, yeah, well, uh, and that's that's pretty much it. We've got one more... Uh, we've got one more voice message, which I'll, which I'll, uh, leave you with, uh, from Ian in London about watching a couple of controversial movies with his dad. Hello, Dizzle Podcast. This is Ian Mangani from London, England. I'm leaving you a message for your podcast on uncomfortable viewing experiences. When I was about 12 and you couldn't get Clockwork Orange in the UK because of Stanley Kubrick's self-imposed ban... Uh, I imported a videotape of it and ended up watching it with my dad. And after a bunch of beatings and all kinds of other horrible stuff, uh, we finally got to the scene where Alex has a threesome with two young women he's just met uh, to the William Tell Overture. And my dad had had enough by that point and he was furious and he turned the tape off and he said, I feel like I'm going to go to jail for watching this movie. And... um, I was so disturbed by this that years later when me and my dad were watching a revival show of Natural Born Killers and experiencing all the intense stuff that happens in that movie, I started to get very nervous and very sensitive and I turned to him as the film ended and said, that was pretty intense, wasn't it? And my dad 
had changed at this point, and I guess I had changed at this point too, and he said to me, it's only a movie. Thanks, <laughs> bye. <laughs> Inspired by the movie Max, featuring a dog that's set to inspire a nation, uh, today's game is Golden Trivia Answer Retriever. In which I <laughs> <laughs> just rolls off the tongue. I was trying to come up with the most unwieldy possible game title, <laughs> in which I'll ask you multiple choice questions about dog movies. We'll go one at a time, so uh, the Scott Tobias rule is not in effect. Uh, joining me are... Rachel Handler. Keith Phipps. Genevieve Kosky. Okay, I've got, I'm reaching into my uh, lunchbox here uh, of questions. Uh, there, uh, there may be a question I throw back because it's supposed to come after another question. So don't think I'm like, you know, picking and choosing here. There's mm-hmm. like one question that's going to follow another question. I don't want it to come up. Um, so, Rachel, I'll start with you. Great. I love dogs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in Eight Below, two Antarctic explorers are forced by the brutal cold to leave their team of eight sled dogs behind. How many of the dogs survive the ordeal? A, five. B, six. C, all eight. D, none. Wait, is this like a, like a science question or like there's no, a movie? There's a movie called Eight Below with oh. Paul Walker. <laughs> where, they, where, they, where they have to <laughs> I leave. I thought I was going to have to do some it's math. It's based on a true story. Okay. And how many dogs survive out of the eight that are left in the cold? In the Antarctic. What was it? Was five? A was five. B six. C all eight. D none. None. So, wow. The the inspira- no. They, they, <laughs> no. It's not that. It would you not really be, don't like it dogs. Would not be that inspirational if 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 Paul Walker just returned to a bunch of dead dogs. <laughs> um, the, the answer is B six. Oh okay. Six. Six. All right. They don't all eight make it. There's no way I'm watching that movie now. <laughs> nope. Two don't. You know, it's tough. Those conditions are not great. Uh, all right, Keith. Over the course of five Air Bud films, this is opposed to Air Buddies. Which of the following sports does the buddy does Buddy not master? A. Basketball. B. Football. C. Soccer. D. Volleyball. E. Hockey. <laughs> I believe it's. I, I forget which letter it is, but I believe it's volleyball. I don't think there was ever an Air Bud volleyball film. Is oh, you're cool? wrong about that. Oh, <laughs> I was about to about... say wrong. No, no, no. I, I think I think if you really thought this through, uh, uh, that dog on skates would not have been <laughs> the best. <laughs> I, no, I, I, Wait, did you specifically say ice you're, hockey? You're, you're you're right. I did not actually. You're true. It could be it could be field hockey. You're right, Scott. A dog playing hockey as opposed to a dog <laughs> playing basketball or football is ridiculous. Yes, it is. I think, I think you should be ashamed. Uh, I'm going to move on to Genevieve. We're, no, people are, these are tougher questions than I thought. Um, Genevieve, which Benji movie did Roger Ebert give the thumbs up on the same show he gave a thumbs down to Full Metal Jacket? A, Benji. B, For the Love of Benji. C, Oh Heavenly Dog. D, Benji the Hunted. E, Benji Returns. I believe it's Benji the Hunted. It is indeed wow. Benji the Hunted setting off a very YouTubable uh, con- uh, conflict between uh, Siskel and Ebert. Uh, uh, Siskel uh, really got on Ebert and then Ebert exploded on Siskel <laughs> about the whole relative, you know, uh, relativity of badness type of thing. So, uh, so Genevieve has one. Uh, everybody else has zero. This could change with uh, Rachel. Rachel, which dog movie made the most money? A, Beverly Hills Chihuahua. B, Beethoven, C, Turner and Hooch, D, Cats and Dogs 2, the, the return of, what is it, the Kitty Galore or something about yeah. Kitty Galore? Yeah. 
How did um, you forget Kitty Galore? I'm going to say the first one. Uh, yeah, correct. Uh, Beverly Hills Chihuahua made $94.5 million. Uh, uh, closest to that was Turner and Hooch was 71. So, wow. uh, And Cats and Dogs, too, really fell short of the standard set by the first Cats and Dogs, <laughs> which, which, was, which was very, very close to Beverly Hills Chihuahua. Okay. You know, I think the amount of money each film you mentioned made is inversely proportional to the size of the dog that is featured. Is that huh. right? Because oh <laughs> Beethoven is a very large dog yeah. and Chihuahuas generally yeah. quite small. But yeah. if Turner Hooch is number two, yeah, that's a fairly that's a big large dog. dog. Bigger than Beethoven? Mm. No, but, but what was the other one? Turner and Hooch. Well, I guess it's dogs of all sizes. In, in, yeah, in, yeah. yeah. You know, let's just say I'm right and move on. All right. But I, You're I like totally the idea. right. You're just, you know, putting all the pieces together. Uh, keep drawing that question. There. All right. Keith. Yes. There have been eight Beethoven movies. <laughs> How many star Charles? No, Gr- there have not. <laughs> there have. <laughs> how, how many? How many? How many did Charles Grodin star in? A, I, one, B, two, C, four, D, all eight. Definitely not all eight. I think it's B two. That's right. B. Yeah. Yes, he he stopped at two. He stops at two, which which gives me follow up question to Ooh. you, uh, Genevieve. When Charles Grodin left, which of the following actors did not take over the lead role? A, Judge Reinhold, C, Dave Thomas, C, Brian Dennehy, D, Jonathan Silverman. Oh. Who, who said no? So, so you're saying that three, three of, the, of three those... Of did, three of them were in the, the sequels. Okay. Not all together? Not. No. Okay. Um, I'm going to say Brian Dennehy. Yeah, you're right. But Dennehy, defi- Dennehy I, I, definitely... I can't imagine Dennehy. One, <laughs> not like the other. He says no to. He's a character actor, but sometimes even he can say no. So Genevieve, you're 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 in the lead wow. through the first uh, first uh, two rounds. Um, okay, this is this is for you, uh, Rachel. Okay. Uh, the most recent version of the Shaggy Dog, about a grown man who turns into a sheepdog, features Tim Allen licking his wife's cheek at one point. Which <laughs> which actress is on the receiving end of this horrifying tongue bath? <laughs> a. Christina Applegate. B. Kristen Davis. C, Patricia Heaton, D, Julianne Moore, E, Diane Keaton. Who? Uh, this is the most horrifying image. B. In, yes, Kristen Davis. Yeah. Gets licked by Tim Allen for, for scale. She took, she took the role for scale. <laughs> <laughs> she said, I've got to be in this passion Wait, but project. they're married. It's just a kiss on the cheek. What is so horrifying about that? Uh, it was a, it's a lick. It's not a kiss. So? Full on, it's a long, 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 like, long lick. Oh. Right? Yeah, it's like a well, chin, dog. Chin to temple. Like a dog. It's uh. not good. It's mm. not good. You don't want that. I think mm. there's a there's a shaggy dog person inside a dog on my block. Like, <laughs> I told Genevieve about this. Really? There's a dog with human, human eyes. It's very scary. A dog with <laughs> I'm like, who's in there? <laughs> yeah, he's just trying to find like the formula that that, that, that the reverse of the formula exactly. to turn him into a I dog. I want to help, but I don't know how. <laughs> uh, you need to find some sort of amulet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, so uh, that puts Rachel on the board. Keith, let's go to you. Um, Owen Wilson has starred in two dog movies. Marley and Me is one. Which is the other? Is it A, Marmaduke, B, My Dog Skip, C, Bingo, or D, Firehouse Dog? Um, oh, I know this. It's Marmaduke. It is Marmaduke. Yeah. Not only is he, not only does he, is he featured in it. He is, he is Marmaduke. Marmaduke. Yeah. Owen Wilson as Marmaduke. So that, that puts Keith with two, and now Genevieve can uh, go with uh, see if have her perfect record tested here. All right. 
Genevieve, which of the following taglines is for Snow Dogs, starring Cuba Gooding Jr.? A, get ready for mush hour. (laughs) B, the biggest doggone family film of the year. C, this Christmas, heal the love. Or D, putting the idiot in I did did Shit. I had to give it up the made-up answer Yeah, well, I'm going to say that that's not that one. (laughs) That'd be pretty good, though. It's either mush hour or doggone. Um, (laughs) Mush hour just seems like too much of a Scott Tobias being proud of his puns. I'm going to say the doggone family fun. No, it's mush hour. Damn it. I know. It's so great. That's why I chose it. Because I was like, oh, people are going to say it came came up with this really stupid pun. But it's there. Get ready for mush hour. That's incredible. Snow dogs. Yeah. So we're all knotted up. Yep. This is it. This is the final round here. So this is this will be for all of the... Uh, Quick, come up with some sort of canine metaphor for this uh, situation. Uh, all the biscuits? All the biscuits. <laughs> for all the biscuits. Gonna, I was going to say biscuits. That's a good mm. choice. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> here we go, Rachel. Jim Belushi's next four movies after canine were Taking Care of Business, Mr. Destiny, Only the Lonely, and Curly Sue. How many of those made more money than canine? <laughs> <laughs> a one b two c three d all four e none three <laughs> no none what? none made more money than canine canine was a hit a big oh, hit wow yeah turner and hooch and canine were hits the same the same year people could I not get enough curly sue was oh, curly, curly no, sue i feel like was kind of a thing i yeah. think i think i think of my girl okay yeah, canine made it a bunch of money thing. and, and yeah. had some straight to video sequels the whole the whole yeah all right, Keith, yes. to you. All right. How did Hooch die? <laughs> A, natural causes. B, got stabbed. C, got shot. D, got kicked. Hooch died? Uh, no, it's, it's, I believe it's C, he got yeah, shot. Yeah, he got shot. Yeah. yeah. Got kicked. He got shot. All right. Um, Genevieve, last dog. one to you. This, yep. this is for the tie. I'm going to give you a plot. You name the movie. Two Wait, do- okay, okay, go ahead. Okay. Two dogs fall in love with the pound, but they're adopted by separate people. As fate would have it, however, these two people fall in love and the dogs are reunited. The film ends with a litter of puppies. The film is A, must love dogs, <laughs> B, the dog who saved Christmas, C, a dog of Flanders, D, Hachi, a dog's tail, or E, I made it up. Hmm. See, it sounds a lot like Lady and the Tramp, except for them meeting at the pound. So because so much of it is stemming from a recognizable movie, I'm going to say you made it up. Oh, you got it. Ha! Damn it. <laughs> I don't have a... Uh, I, I, I know all the inner workings of your brain, Scott <laughs> you, Tobias. You, you, thought I, you thought I made up the mush thing, but I, I didn't think it was real. It's true. Uh, but now I, we have a tie. I thought that was a pretty good plot, frankly. <laughs> Don't you think? It kind of sounds. Yeah, 90% of it is a Disney classic. Just wait, wait for the money to roll in once you <laughs> yeah. put that one out there. Yeah, I actually didn't consciously model after Lady of the Trap. I just thought, wouldn't that be cute if they like fell in love with a pound and then, the, and then they got adopted by different people and those two people fell in love? Uh, and it ends with a litter of puppies. Next, you're going to tell me about your great idea of a, a story of a, a villain who wants to make a, uh, a coat out of dog fur, but doesn't quite know how to obtain oh, the dog fur. I, I'm outraged. <laughs> I'm outraged by that. I, I'm going to have to come up with some sort of a tiebreaker question because I don't have one, uh, unless we want to end in a tie, in which case, we, you know, that, would be, that would be okay. But, um, I don't mind ending in a tie. All right. Well, let's, maybe let's end in a tie. But um, 
We're both good dogs. Okay, so let's 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 end this thing. We're gonna end this thing in a tie, but I have a bonus question for for the entire group. Okay. Are you ready for this, mm-hmm. Keith? You ready? Yes. Who's a good dog? A, you are. B, I am. <laughs> <laughs> you are a good dog, Scott. Yes, you are. You're a good dog. <laughs> no, B, 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 I am. I'm a good dog. I'm a good dog. Wait. What? <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> to <Anyway>. mallet? <laughs> There's no, there's no, there's no right. <laughs> I was trying to get screw you people up. All right, uh, Genevieve, Rachel, Keith, thank you. Thanks. And now we've reached thirty seconds to sell. Where in person A, Genevieve Kosky, in person B, Tasha Robinson, has thirty seconds to convince me to buy the recommendation. Whether it's for, whether it's for a film, a soundtrack, an idea, whatever. Uh, Genevieve. You ready to go? I am. All right, let's start with you. I'm going to press start here in three seconds, okay? All right. Three, two, one, go. Okay, we just finished discussing The Virgin Suicides for Movie of the Week, so I want to recommend a movie that feels in many ways like a su- successor to that film, though it's thematically very different. It's called The Sisterhood of Night, and it was just recently added to Netflix, Netflix Instant. It was actually recommended to me by one Tasha Robinson, who reviewed it to, for us and made the comparison of Virgin Suicides along with Heathers, but I'll throw The Craft and even Mean Girls in there as other apt comparison points. It's a rare te- teen drama that achieves a legitimately interesting move, mood, and it's frequently quite beautiful to look at. Oh, I'm out of time. It's good. Watch it. Okay, buzz. <laughs> I had so much more. Yeah. You, so wait, I, since that was my recommendation, if she wins, I win, right? Well, we maybe. all win. Yeah. Oh, that's true. We do yeah, that's win. right. No, you, really you the listener, win. Um, well, let's see who's who's the actual winner here. Well, uh, Ta- Tasha, uh, I want to do the same is thing. Is Barney going to win this even though he isn't competing? <laughs> In a way, we're all winners, but another more accurate way, Barney is the winner. Okay, uh, are you ready? Mm-hmm. Three, two, one. Go. A decade before director Robert Wise won Oscars for Sound of Music and West Side Story, he worked with Val Luton and Val Luton and Orson Welles taking their style in new genres. His 1947 noir Born to Kill is the spooky, fascinating romantic potboiler like Douglas Sirk processed through a dime store pulp novel. We're talking about daring roles for women. This film stars Claire Trevor as an ambitious schemer fighting her venal instincts but falling for a murderer played by a young, handsome Lawrence Tierney. He is the rare, dangerous male fatale and his appeal to her goes straight to her lady bits, something I haven't seen in a 1947 film. Oh no. We were both just not on our game speed-wise today. All fumbly bumbly. I'm gonna d- deny both of you away. <laughs> <laughs> in a rare, in a rare judgment, nobody wins. Um, so uh, you both went over. So I'm, I'm not gonna really count that against either one of you because you cancel each other out on that respect. I'm gonna go with Tasha on this one because Shocker. I. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> because I think Robert Wise has quite an interesting filmography, and this is this is one that even I don't. No, I have not seen. Uh, even though I've seen such films as The Haunting and The Setup and <laughs> and uh, West Side Story and a bunch of other Robert Wise films. Curse of the Cat People? I've seen Curse of the Cat People. Um, so I'm going to give this to Tasha. Tasha, good he job. Does, he does some really interesting stuff. But this yeah. uh, this opened up, like seeing this at my husband's like random noir films night made me want to go back and revisit just like everything in his career I haven't seen. Well, yeah, it's not all great. <laughs> I think he did, he did one of the, he did one of like the dancing movies from the eighties. Uh, like, was it rooftops or what the hell was it? Uh, okay, okay. This is turning okay, this into is like 120 seconds. All right. Out. All right. Well, anyway, uh, Tasha, Genevieve, thank you very much. Thanks.
That does it for episode 39 of the Dissolve podcast. Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy the Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. If you have any questions or thoughts, email us at info at thedissolve.com. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve the Hurricane Kosky with assistance from Colin the Animal Griffith. Who's a good dog? You are.